0: Hello everyone, Tom Slater here. Just before we get into the episode, I just want to let you all know that if you're hoping to apply for Spike's internship program, you better get a move on. The applications are closing on Monday the 20th in just a few days time. So if you want to come and work with us in our London office, be trained up in how to write polemics and help us produce our podcasts for six months on this paid scheme, then do just go to spiked-online.com slash interns, where you can find out more about the internship and how you can apply. That's spiked-online.com slash interns, and you've got until Monday. Hello, and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Tom Slater, editor of Spiked. No fraser Myers or Ella this week. We can't find them, but luckily I've been able to find two very esteemed stand-ins who are going to help me navigate what's been another crazy week in British politics. I'm delighted to be joined by Luke Gittos. Luke is a Spike columnist, a lawyer, and the founder of the Freedom Law Clinic. Luke, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. And also delighted to be joined by Paul Embry, who is a trade unionist and writer. How are you doing, Paul? Very good. Thanks, Tom. So we're going to discuss the backlash to the Rwanda plan, the Grenfell tragedy five years on, Keir Starmer's leadership, and why Glastonbury is so white. So to kick things off, let's talk about the Rwanda plan. It's been the big story of the week. And I think this is probably the week where it stopped really being an argument about immigration, in many respects, and became an argument about who gets to set immigration policy. So this, of course, is the Tories' flagship immigration policy, of sending uh, illegal migrants effectively to the central African state in order to try and kind of break the business model of the people traffickers going across the English Channel. It was always going to be very contentious. Um, Over the course of the past week, we've had the Prince of Wales, we've had the bishops get involved and air their criticisms, and then, of course, the courts as well. So uh, a load of legal challenges. Originally, the policy seems to clear the High Court and the Supreme Court, um, but over the course of Tuesday when this first flight was supposed to go, you know, Case after case of individuals being pulled off of the flight. And then this big dramatic intervention from the European Court of Human Rights on Tuesday nights, which effectively grounded it. So, Luke, what do you make of all of this? Is this a case of the ECHR overstepping the mark? Or, as, you know, Remainer, Twitter have been saying, you know, this is just them doing what their job is, which is to make sure human rights are upheld. Well, I think we need to start with the gravity of what happened
1: at a democratic level. So, As you mentioned, on Tuesday night, an application was made by lawyers in this country to the Strasbourg court. And a single judge of that court decided that on an interim basis, i.e. without hearing the entire case, this is an interim measure, something which happens before the final disposal (laughs) of the case, he ordered that effectively the final remaining asylum seekers on this plane shouldn't be removed, and therefore the flight did not take off. Of course, it's worth situating this in the history of legal challenges that this policy has faced. You know, this, this policy has been challenged relentlessly from its outset, um, And as you suggest, it's been cleared by the High Court and the, all the relevant courts in this country. And so what we have is effectively one judge sitting in Strasbourg preventing the inaction of a democratically mandated policy whatever you think about the substance of the policy, we can come on to talk about that in a moment. But this policy went through democratic debate, through our Houses of Parliament, it went through our courts, and all the relevant institutions of our democracy approved it. And we also know it has popular support. We know that more people support Mm. this policy than don't. So effectively, what you have is one judge in the European court overriding our entire democratic process in, in quite a significant way. Now, as you suggest, you know, the Remainer um, Twitterati, as we might call them, and we know who we're talking about when we talk about (laughs) that that particular set. You you know, they would say, well, look, um, this is what the court is for. It's to put a, a, a kind of restraint on democracy. And actually, that is the whole point of the European Court of Human Rights. It is to put a curve on democratic will. You know, when the court was set up, the founders of the court were very clear that this was intended to prevent a repetition of, you know, the Holocaust and mm. what they saw as the worst excesses of democracy. But of course, we've come a very long way since uh, the mid twentieth century, and um, this is not preventing the Holocaust. This is intervening to prevent a democratically mandated policy from being carried out. And I think a lot of the court's detractors, myself included, will see this as a clear example of how the court fetters the democratic will. And I think it's a problem. Mm. Paul, what was your take on all this?
2: Well, I mean, Luke's the legal expert. I'm the layman. But looking from a layman's point of view, I, I found it disturbing mm. um, for, for very much the reasons that uh, that Luke outlined. I think when you're in a situation where two national courts effectively in this country had said, look, there is no legal reason at this stage to, to grant interim relief to, to, in response to the injunction um, and the flight can go ahead, then when a judge from outside the country steps in at the last minute and says, no, it can't, then I think it does actually raise serious questions about democratic accountability, really. And whatever side of the debate you fall on on the Rwanda issue, and obviously, you know, there's a range of views on it. Um, I think that should jolt everybody. I think that should make everybody stop and think: hold on a second, what is the democratic process in this country? We've got a government that was elected with you know, a very decisive majority, not a government I voted for, not a government that I wanted to see. I've got some misgivings about the Rwanda policy uh, myself, um, but it was elected um, and it's entitled to implement the policy, as as far as I can see, certainly without European judges stepping Mm -hmm. in and saying, no, we're not going to allow you to do that. And I mean, I would be interested to know if on the wider policy, because we know, as I understand it, that the the courts here decided that there needs to be a full review of the legalities of of the whole Rwanda policy. Now, let's say in, I think, a month's time, whenever that review takes place and the policy is rubber-stamped, Is it then possible that the European Court of Human Rights steps in again and says, no, you've you've done your review, but we are still of the view that this policy actually isn't acceptable? Um, Then I think it becomes even more serious. Mm. Uh, So
0: there are real questions around it. It feels like, especially after Brexit, we've had so many, you know, just the attempt to implement Brexit showed up all the kind of anti-democratic aspects of our state, as well as the various kind of legal obligations internationally we have. And it's amazing seeing so many people who are effectively cheering some of the most regressive and anti-democratic parts of our system, you know, cheering the Prince of Wales for behind closed doors, getting involved, cheering on bishops, (laughs) cheering on judges.
2: And some, you know, let's be blunt, some... Tory or ex-Tory MPs have now become folk heroes on the left. If you look at the likes of Michael Heseltine and Rory Stewart and people like that who normally people on the left would be completely opposed to um but because of their particular view on Brexit and their you know they were they were part of that kind of remainer uh, elitist kind of mentality. Um, people on the left have flocked to them and mm. are now
0: treating them as some sort of heroes. That's that's been interesting to witness. I think. Now I remember at the one of the um, People's Vote marches, seeing Michael Heseltine get a kind of hero as well, well from, exactly. from the sort of London <laughs> progressive, you know, activist set. So, but it, you know, it never has it been more clear, at least for a while, that this really is about that democratic question. Um, but Luke, we've already seen Boris Johnson hint at the possibility of leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, therefore getting out of the remit of the court. Um, That seems to terrify the certain section of society that we're talking about, you know, the pundit class, the Remainers, um, all of those kinds of broadcasters. They do paint it, as you suggest, as like we're on the slippery slope then to Nazi Germany if we decide to peel these things back. Um, But I suppose part of it is it's a branding exercise. Who wants to be against human rights? But why should we be concerned, particularly about the European court and the role it has on hemming in our democratic system?
1: Well, I think that the human rights laws that we have restrain freedom, and I think they play a role in eroding freedom. And I think the reason for that is, well, an example can can illustrate what I'm talking about. Whilst um, we've lived under the Human Rights Act since the 19, late 1998, um, we've had more and more anti-freedom legislation come into play. Uh, and we, I think, as a society, have not had our freedoms protected by human rights legislation. Um, Because really, the only intervention that the European Court can make is when, firstly, someone takes a case actively to that court. And when they take a case to the court, the law they're considering, the charter that um, underpins the court, the European Convention on Human Rights, says very famously, for example, with respect to free speech, It says that firstly, free speech is a qualified right, Mm. meaning that um, free speech can be infringed in X, Y, and Z circumstances. And most of the cases aren't actually about um, what freedom means; they're more about how is it lawful to intervene in freedom against particular freedoms. So, um, the court actually plays a role in defining how states can intervene in freedom. That's largely what its role is, I think. So. By getting rid of the Human Rights Act, there is an idea amongst um, certain members of the commentariat that we would end up in a far less free society. But I think there is a case to be made that the opposite could be true, because we'd have to think very seriously about um, what these freedoms actually mean. We'd have to have another renewed democratic debate about how free we want our speech to be, about how free we want freedom of conscience to be, and how we actually live in a freer society, how we actually make a freer society, at the moment, the kind of reliance on human rights laws to define these things for us, I think m- makes us take freedom less seriously. It's also important to remember that there is no law that could prevent us sliding back to the Holocaust. You know, the law did not, the, the, the fact that the that these atrocities occur is not because there is not a law preventing them, you know. so getting out of the Human Rights Act would not lead to a slide towards despotism in the way that people imagine. If anything, I think it could lead to a kind of renewed democratic debate about what these freedoms mean. And I think that would be a good thing.
0: And Paul, on the question of how this is going to play, because obviously the main issue at hand, of course, is the question of who gets to decide, as we'd already talked about. But you can't help but think, especially given the time that, say, the government has had recently, that this a kind of battle with foreign judges um, is going to be something which is going to play to their favour. You know, it's been another clear example of an elected British government wanting to do something. And again, because of this anti-democratic interference, it can't. You've also got a very flat-footed, I think it's fair to say, Labour leadership on this question haven't really wanted to come down one side or the other. They'll call the Rwanda plan unworkable and that's pretty much as far as it goes. But how do you see this playing out? Do you think it is going to be of a benefit to the government and a problem for Labour, as a lot of people seem to think?
2: I mean, if I were Boris Johnson, I wouldn't particularly, from a purely kind of strategic point of view, be losing any sleep over what the the European uh, Court of Human Rights has done, because it does set up, as you say, a bit of a set-piece battle. Mm. Um, you know, the Tories taking on the the Eurocrats again um, and speaking on behalf of the people. Um So purely from a politically expedient point of view, um, it could well play into the the Tories' hands. That said, you need to caveat that by saying if in the long run the policy doesn't get off the ground uh, anytime soon um, because European judges keep stepping in and keep blocking it, then that does become the question, the Tory government, they'll get pressure from the public, particularly those people who voted for them, particularly people who voted for them because of issues like Brexit and immigration will unquestionably say, and look, what are you doing about mm. this? You know, are you are you going to take on these judges? Why aren't we getting the policies that, that we voted for? So it's potentially, I guess, a, a double, double-edged sword in that respect. Um, and just, just coming back on on the broader point that, that Luke raised, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I'm not an expert on uh the European Convention of Human Rights, but I don't think I would lose any sleep if we were if we were not a part of signatory to it. And the reason I say that is because it's almost as if some people are, are promoting this idea that without the European Convention of Human Rights, we would almost be some kind of benighted dystopia in this country. <laughs> yep. You know, we we need <laughs> we need this European Convention almost to be civilized. Um and when you think actually it was here in England that we we had things like the English Bill of Rights and the Magna Carta and habeas corpus and all of these uh, cornerstones of liberty, which were in many respects beacons for, for the rest of the world to, to follow. I, I'm not really in the mood to take lectures from people uh, in terms of you know if you if you don't if, if you if you're not signatory to this then then you're going to go to hell in a handcart. I think that point needs to be made
0: definitely. So let's move on and talk about a very grim milestone. That Britain marked this week. So it was five years ago this week that um, the Grenfell Tower tragedy took place. Um, again, a fire in one particular flat, um, quickly ripping through the whole building, claiming 72 lives. Paul, this is something that you've written about yourself. It's something that you've personally very um, worked on, given the fact that you're a firefighter and a trade unionist and were um, at the FBU, the Fire Brigades Union, at the time. And there's a lot of questions about if we've learned any of the lessons, really, of the Grenfell disaster. It was basically found out very soon after that the problem here was the fact that there had been this external cladding added, which was combustible, which had acted as kind of a, again, a kind of chimney through which the fire spread around the building, obvious corner cutting from the various firms who were involved, and just a general indifference, I guess, to the residents there who'd actually also raised some of these concerns. But as someone who's kind of followed this debate over the course of the five years, well, if we're being honest, some of us might have been drifting over onto other issues. Do you think we're at a place where some of the lessons are being learned at this point?
2: I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, there has been some pretty horrendous stuff has come out of the, the public inquiry over recent months. My concern and the concern of the, the FBU is a lot of that stuff is not being reported in the media and not being picked up by people simply because... You know We're well down the road now in terms of the public inquiry. When it launched, as all public inquiries, when they do launch, launch in a blaze of publicity um, and the media is interested for some time. uh, And then after that, especially if it's a long public inquiry, the the attention seems to to drop off. And I think that's exactly what's happened here. And the problem that that has led to, Tom, really, is the, the people who have been on the witness stand recently who have been facing really tough questions, quite rightly, because these are the people who did cut corners Mm -hmm. Uh, and these were the politicians who did deregulate and did allow standards to drop those questions and answers are not getting the attention that they that they merit and at the beginning of the inquiry uh, and we argued in the union at the time that the inquiry was back to front because the phase one of the inquiry was all about what happened on the night the actions of the firefighters what they did what they didn't do and for months, we were subjected to this spectacle of firefighters on the witness stand being very honest and very brave and recounting their stories and facing forensic questions. Um, not unreasonably, because that's what a public inquiry is there to do. And every mistake by a firefighter or by the fire service was on the front pages of the the newspaper, um, the newspapers. And we argued at the time, look, We should deal with the events in the lead up to the the fire. And that should be the phase one of the inquiry. We should be talking about why in an advanced Western city did 72 people die, um, you know, settle down for the night and die before the morning? Um, What kind of lax regulatory regime allowed lethal cladding to be fixed to a residential tower block? Not just Grenfell Tower, but as we discovered hundreds of other tower blocks as well. Who are the people responsible for that? Why did that happen? Get those people on the witness stand first when the, the full glare of, of the media is on them. Uh, and then events on the night we can deal with in the second phase of the inquiry. Um, so it's been, it's been an eye-opener uh, in the sense of the evidence that's, that's been coming out of the inquiry, which shows just how shoddy um, some of the, the contractors were in terms of what they did with the renovation of Grenfell Tower. How some of them, frankly, just lied in order to to make more profit. For example, submitting false results for for tests in terms of the the safety of mm-hmm. the cladding. One quote was um, horse meat being passed off as beef. Um, all of this kind of stuff, uh, and consultants being told to to go away when they raise concerns about safety and so on. Um, And what I would say as as well, I was saying to Luke a little while ago, that whilst the Grenfell Tower fire was certainly unprecedented, no one had ever seen a fire like that before, it wasn't unforeseen. Um, And certainly the Fire Brigades Union back in 1999, giving evidence to a select committee of MPs, very explicitly raised the issue of cladding on high-rise residential buildings and said, look, this is potentially lethal. It's, it's going to create fire spread around the building. Uh, it can go back in through the windows, or upper upper floors, et cetera. And it was almost chilling reading that again because, you know, that's exactly what played out at Grenfell. Uh, and as is often the case politicians just dismissed the trade union for for scaremongering and you know over egging it and whatever and and it turned out to it turned out to be absolutely bang on um so i would i would just urge people you know look at look at the inquiry see the evidence coming out uh, understand the seriousness of, of what happened you know another thing for example is the local authority um, Pushed through austerity-driven cuts uh, in their building control department, which meant that surveyors were, were were left with a mountain of work. So when this kind of stuff is happening, inevitably it's going to raise safety concerns. So so it's been it, it's been it's been a tough five years, and it, it was right that the anniversary was marked because the, the people there at Grenfell have still not had justice. Um, they still don't know. Why what happened to their relatives and loved ones happened in the way that it did? Um, they march silently most months on a silent march where they quietly protest and demand justice and uh, and arm with them in that. And I think we all should be.
0: And Luke, it really is striking. I think a lot of people just can't understand why no one has you know been arrested even over this so far. I've, I think it's amazing that that idiot who burnt that effigy of Grenfell Tower ended up in a prison cell <laughs> before anyone else did. Um, What do you make of that? I mean, why is it that we're almost incapable of kind of delivering justice in situations like this when, again, from pretty much day one, it was pretty clear cut what had happened. We might not have known all the details, but it was obvious that something, a a kind of horrendous act of negligence at least had taken place.
1: I think it's still unbelievably too early to tell. Corporate liability for criminal offences is very difficult to establish the question is whether you you can prosecute companies you can prosecute individuals and that might happen you know there's no there's no statute of limitations on this sort of thing and when the inquiry concludes it may be that the crown prosecution service take a view that there is it's proper to bring a criminal case against one person more than one person against a company etc so I think the courts have done relatively well, actually, in in kind of processing the reality here and dealing with what was an incredibly complicated um, set of circumstances. And I think the inquiry is very slowly playing a role that a public inquiry should play, which is to try and make sure that this never happens again you know we've seen public inquiries being called for in all sorts of crazy circumstances over the last two decades and arguably the role of a public inquiry has become far removed from what they were originally set up to do which was precisely what the Grenfell inquiry is now doing which is establishing facts in a clinical and accurate way so that we can then formulate a response which tries to make sure this never happens again it's worth mentioning the cladding scandal mm. um because this is still rumbling on still very much part of a huge number of people's lives, where leaseholders are effectively living in flats they can't remortgage and they can't sell. And some are even potentially on the hook for huge, unaffordable remedial costs to their own property. Now, that's a scandal. And the government have Attempted to remedy this through various grants. Michael Gove um, recently announced announcing more money, more pressure being put on freeholders to stump up the cash for these remedial works. But we know that this cladding is still across on buildings across the country, and that's had a huge impact on people's lives because they can't move, they can't do anything with the properties that they're in, and technically their properties are worthless. So dealing with that is still a burning question. Um,
0: and, you know, one, one that deserves our attention, really. Mm-hmm. And just finally on this section, Paul, because, you know, one doesn't want to always kind of extrapolate too much from one particular kind of singular tragedy. But at the time and now, I think it's fair to say there's a lot of discussion about what does this mean for society, I guess. Does this say something about the standing of working class people in society, of council tenants, whereby... They're not listened to. I mean, the cladding scheme is interesting as well because it was part of this kind of attempt to meet green targets, which again came very much from on high, not suggesting that, you know, the then Environment Secretary has blood on his hands or anything like that. But again, just this idea of social tenants being people who have stuff done to them, you know, not really being consulted. Um, And again, one of the haunting details which came out very closely was how those residents groups had raised a lot of these concerns um, earlier on. But do you think there is something that we can draw from this Paul, about just the the standing of working class people in, in in modern British society, or is that too much of a stretch?
2: No, I don't think it necessarily is too much of a of a stretch, actually,
0: because I think the truth is that when it
2: comes to to you know, the safety of of particular communities, working class people are often an afterthought, aren't they? You know, I, I think people in power will often think, well, who's got the Who's got the influence to, to kick back at us if we do something that they don't like? Who can, who's, who's got the power to fund the legal challenge to us? Who's likely to, to get together uh, and take us through the courts or whatever it may be? Then invariably, it's, it's the more affluent sections of society that can do that. And you know, I guess if, if, you're, if you're thinking about introducing a policy, whether it's the kind of deregulation um, and, and the dilution of safety standards that allowed things like Grenfell Tower to happen, um, then you would probably think, well, working class people will live with that. They're not gonna. They're not gonna challenge it. They're not gonna. They're not gonna get lawyers on the case or go out on the streets, etc. And I think that, I think another lesson, really, to And, and you know, I think we we are, we do have a bit of a culture of safetyism in this country, and I'm I'm highly critical of it to a certain degree. But equally, I think we have to recognise where health and safety is important, and a bit of red tape is important, actually. And I think what Grenfell Tower showed. Is that there was a deregulation agenda um, where people weren't concerned about health and safety in the way that they ought to have been, um, where people just kind of dismissed a lot of the regulations as red tape and said we can we can get rid of them. Uh, you look at, for example, the part privatisation in the nineteen eighties of, of local authority building control departments by the Thatcher government. That kind of. Deregulation, stroke, privatisation agenda that continued under under New Labour, and unquestionably led to to much of the the laxness that we've laxness that we've seen. Combine that with you know the, the the corner cutting of the contractors and their desire to uh, you know to make as much profit as possible at, at the expense of safety, which I think demonstrably happened in this case. If you look at what's coming out of the public inquiry, that's not just rhetoric; that is literally what happened in this case. Um, I think those are some of the lessons that we can learn from it. But I I think the way in which the Grenfell community have have galvanised over the last five years and said, actually, we're not going to be forgotten, we're not going to go away, we are going to keep on your case, um, shows that actually you you can't, if you do try and dismiss working class people, uh, if you you see them as an afterthought, there's a chance they will come back at you and good for them.
0: So let's talk a bit about the Labour Party. So a lot of discussion in British politics in recent weeks has been talking about how Dreadfully, it's going for Boris Johnson. And of course it is, Um, you know, 40% of his own MPs (laughs) voted that they didn't have confidence in him just a week ago. And yet, conversation this week has turned to the Labour Party again. um, There was a poll in the Observer last week showing that even though Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer are not particularly trusted by the public. In some um, best Prime Minister polls, Boris Johnson is still edging it, which was fascinatingly. You know, you've got a cost of living crisis, uh, the list of scandals goes on and on and on, and yet there's still this sense that Starmer is not quite breaking through um, and is not really getting over that sense that he's just quite dull and doesn't have much of a vision. Luke, what's your take on this? Why is he struggling so much? What do you think he is struggling? I think there was a really illustrative moment today when Starmer
1: ally Wes Streeting uh, has been forced to roll back on his comments on BBC's question time in support of the RMT union industrial mm-hmm. action and Street's comments were quite guarded and reserved you know effectively saying I can understand why people are voting for industrial action while the railways are voting for industrial action and today he's been forced to roll back on that presumably at the behest of the Starmer leadership and Starmer himself you know the, the Labour Party abstained on that vote with respect to the RMT's action the uh, conservative government mooting this uh, uh, vote to 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 criticize the action and labor abstained. And I think a lot of people are wondering, well, if Labour aren't going to get involved in debates like this, what are they for? Because here you have an issue where working class interests are manifesting in a very clear way and Labour aren't just um they're remaining silent. They're not taking a position. And I think that Keir Starmer is effectively what you have when you you have a very competent lawyer transitioning into politics. Because I remember when he took the leadership, um, everyone was saying how forensic he was. Mm, That was the best thing about it. Forensic, clinical. But of course, that's not enough. You need to be able to um, convince people of a political project. And that's been the glaring hole at the heart of the Starmer um, leadership uh, since its inception, really. Um, And I think that, you know, the idea in Boris Johnson, you kind of have the opposite of competence, you know, arguably the least competent. Performative incompetence. Exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. Someone who doesn't care about the truth, about facts, um, but does seem to be able to connect with sentiment and ideas. Very interesting um, reporting I heard on a podcast this week that Labour tacticians seem to think that um, criticising Boris, um, they don't want to attack him too directly because it's come to be seen as attacking Brexit. And I think there's probably some truth in that, in that what Boris has been successful in is embodying Brexit to some extent. Get Brexit done, the sloganeering, all of that sort of stuff has, I think, worked to connect him with Brexit, at least in the mind of of the Labour Party, and probably also with sections of the public. So Keir Starmer just can't connect with any grand political vision. He has no idea about how he would do things differently. And that's what we've seen throughout the pandemic, what we've seen... um throughout Ukraine, through all the major moments of Boris's premiership, there has been nothing coming from the Labour Party as to how they would be different. Mm. And I think that is, that is part of the um, problem when you have a lawyer transitioning into politics. You know, A lot of the New Labour leadership were lawyers, but they had an idea about what they would do differently. You know, New Labour was, to some extent, a coherent political project. Here you have someone who believes that he can survive and lead a party based merely on his Handling of evidence, his marshalling of facts, and his ability to cross
0: examine. And I think he's showing himself to fall way short. And I think you definitely got a point about Boris and Brexit. I feel like, again, the opposition to him kind of hands that to him naturally when, you know, as soon as Labour has an uptick in the polls, everyone says, brilliant, we can reverse Brexit. Or you've got a shadow cabinet minister this week letting slip on a Zoom (laughs) call suggesting that maybe we should go back into the single market. Mm. Can't help but feed that. But um, Paul, what's your take on Keir Starmer? Obviously, you're a lifelong Labour supporter, probably more likely to be diplomatic than. Neil would, but you know there was a, <laughs> there was one, there was one survey this week where they said that the number one word that comes up when people talk about Kier is boring. Is he boring? Do you think? I'm, I, I mean, I'm a great believer that, as
2: Tony Benn used to say, politics shouldn't be about personalities it should be about issues um that said it would be, <laughs> it would be silly to pretend that personality isn't important in politics it's for for voters it isn't just um about substance it's about image as well um that's undeniable um there is there's a lack of vision unquestionably from the labor party there's a, a lack of inspiration a lack of ideas uh you, there's there's no kind of bold radical economic vision um they will often talk about having having fairer taxes than the, the tories or opposing this particular welfare cut and all of that is fine but i think if you're serious about trying to inspire people you actually need a bold kind of macroeconomic vision you say how are we going to reorder this economy how, how are we going to shift the wealth and balance of power in this country from from rich to to poor uh, what are we going to do to revive our industrial base? What are we going to do to get real wages rising again? Uh, what are we going to do to make our economy more competitive, to, to get productivity up, to get investment up? Um, seems to be very little on that kind of thing. Um, and I think if you combine that with the fact that uh, the, the Labour Party, I think culturally is still a million miles from the very voters, it needs to win back uh, voters across small town, Britain, working class Britain, uh, provincial Britain, um, then I kind of think that whoever was the leader of the Labour Party at the moment, I just don't think it would make a great deal of difference. I mean, it seems to me there's a, there's a, A bit of a lack of talent on the Labour benches. I don't mean that unkindly, but in Mm. terms of the people... In politics in general. In politics in (laughs) general, exactly. I don't think it's just a Labour Party uh, issue. I I mean, I was talking to someone recently, if you went back to the 70s and 80s, you know, whether you like the Labour Party or not, you could look at some of the real big hitters on the front bench, the likes of Tony Benn and Michael Foot and Peter Shaw and Dennis Healy, Tony Crossland, Shirley Williams, Barbara Castle, all these people, massive heavyweights in their own right. All of them could have led the Labour Party... Um, now. I think if you look at the Labour Party front bench, and I'm, I've been a Labour Party member for nearly 30 years, I, I don't know half of the shadow front bench, <laughs> frankly. I, I'll say that unashamedly. I just i just don't know them. Um, I don't feel there's a connection there with with ordinary working-class communities. I think Labour has got to try and shake off this image of itself as an image that that is there with some justification, really, as a party of, of social activists and student radicals and urban liberals, people living in our, our fashionable cities and our university towns, a party for the... The professional and managerial classes, party that looks down on working class Britain. I know Starmer has tried to tackle some of that. You know, he, he stands in front of a union jack when he gives his speeches. Fine, he's talking about family, community, nation. Fine, but it's going to take more than sound bites. You, the the Labour Party needs a DNA. It needs to change its DNA, uh, frankly. And, and until it does that, then they're not going to connect. So I don't think.
0: And we've got a few minutes left, but I just want to squeeze in the big topic of this podcast, really, which is why is Glastonbury so white? <laughs> um, you know, it often falls to comedians to ask the questions that no one else will. In this case, it was Lenny Henry. He was talking to the Radio Times, I believe. And just at one point, kind of comes out with this point about when he's watching Glastonbury on television, he wonders why the crowd is um, quite so vanilla. This is a kind of recurring thing, not not with Lenny Henry, or not singling him out, where... Again, it's some kind of big public event. It's a protest, and there's this question about why is this crowd so white? There's a, there's a kind of recurring feature, it seems like, on BBC News where they take some sort of leisure pursuit and wonder why it's so white. Whether that's walking rambling, in the countryside and stuff like cycling that. was another yeah. one they they yeah. flagged up. So, Luke, what do you make of this this kind of tendency towards almost like racial bean counting in all situations? What's that? Well, like? I notice it only ever applies to specific. Events. So I remember being on
1: some of the Remainer marches just to have a look at what was mm. going on, and it was the whitest place I've ever been. You know, there <laughs> was, it was undoubtedly. I mean, I think it's a real shame to look at everything through that lens and to um, reduce a, an event like Glastonbury to the fact that most people are there are white. I mean, it, it, Glastonbury, you need some commitment to get there, you need money, you need to sit there on the waiting list and try and wrangle your way to get a ticket. Um, so, Who knows? Maybe it's a. I I genuinely don't know why the majority of people there are white. I mean, it's not a. It's a diverse lineup this year. It's worth saying (laughs) that it's not a kind of culturally homogenous place. It is somewhere where different kinds of music are performed. There's no reason necessarily why the audience should be white. But nonetheless, you know, I think it's slightly ridiculous to reduce these events in this way. And I think it's sad because I I, I also think that you know when Lenny Henry says it's interesting, uh, what what. There is something else going on there, which I can't quite characterize. Why is it interesting? What are you saying? Are you suggesting that you know the the algorithm that selects people for tickets is racist? <laughs> are you suggesting that this is some grand um, that there is some sociological insight here? I doubt it. I, I think it's more about, um, I suppose, making a point for the sake of making the point. And I think when when we live in a
0: increasingly racially harmonious society, I would argue it's sad to see things through that lens. And Julie Birch on Spike this week suggested that the reason Glassbury was so white is just because only smelly white middle-class balls want to hang out with other very middle-class Very middle public, balls. quite plausible. But Paul, what's your theory?
2: I, well, it, exactly that, what Julie said, really, because it's mainly kind of white <laughs> middle-class students from the home counties, isn't it? So, of course, in the same way that if you went to a, a rap festival, I suppose the demographic would be very different. Um I, I I just think some people are obsessed with you know you talked about bean counters um tom and and it is almost as if people are seeking some in every pursuit in every public event in mm. every walk of life people are seeking some kind of perfect pro rata representation in everything and if it if it doesn't fall that way then there must be something wrong there must be something structurally wrong there must be some innate racism or something that we we're, we're just not getting and the truth is look some people and people from different backgrounds are interested in things that other people are not particularly interested in or they might go to events that other people might not particularly want to go to and I just, I just don't look. I'm a great believer that, of course, you want to break down barriers, and and no one should ever be prevented from going to an event or from pursuing something they want to pursue because of of their race or whatever. We're all agreed that would be um, completely unacceptable. But equally, I just don't buy into this kind of social engineering, which says that unless you have got this kind of hyper diverse outcome that people want the whole time. And unless you achieve it, then there's something wrong and we have to look in the mirror and we have to kind of um, go in for this self-flagellation every time. Um, I I don't buy it and it needs to be resisted.
0: Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.